We are extremely glad to welcome you today to the Carter Report. Today I'm going to talk about keeping the faith in tough times. But firstly, great music from Kevin Uke. Would you please welcome him here today? Beverly and I have just come back from San Francisco. Mark Twain said about San Francisco that the coldest winter he'd spent anywhere in the world was a summer in San Francisco. <laughs> uh, my daughter Julie and her husband just had a little baby boy. But before I show you the pictures of the little baby boy, I'm going to show you a picture of my little girl whose name is Amelie. Now, she's two years of age and uh, she's four months and Beverly and I, when Julie was in hospital, we were in charge. We told her just what to do and she did everything. I'm, I'm a tough 
grandpa. Now, let me tell you a story. <laughs> it had been a long day. Julie had had this baby, nine pounds, 14 ounces. But we'll, we'll talk about that later. So Beverly and I were looking after Amelie. And the, Amelie hadn't got much sleep in the afternoon. And so when nighttime came, about seven o'clock, we said, well, we'll go, come on, we we'll go to bed now. She gave her a bath and she said, don't want. You see? I just said, well, we're just going to do it. She said, don't want. I said, well, what, what do you, you know, you've got to be tolerant on these occasions. What would you like to do? She said, I want to watch Thomas. You know who Thomas is? Thomas is a train. Yeah, Thomas is a train and he's got lots of friends. And so I did what I'm best at doing. I negotiated. I said, Amelie, she's this high. She's this high. And I said to her, now, Amelie, one Thomas, then bed. She said, two Thomas. <laughs> this high? Two Thomas. So Beverly said, you know, she, it's, she's all stirred up and she's upset and she doesn't know what's going on. So up the stairs we go, Leanne's house. We go up the stairs and we sit down and uh, about to turn on Thomas. She beat me in the first little bit, I thought, maybe. So I said, come and sit on Grandpa's knee. She said, no, sit on line. Well, Beverly had bought her a chair that looks like a line. She said, no, I sit on line. So anyhow, we, uh, we said, all right, uh, we'll show you Thomas. Um, we looked at one Thomas, and then she said, two Thomas. Uh, we showed her three Thomases, and <laughs> then she went down. She was prepared then. She was about falling over. We took her down to put her in a bed, and I said to her, trying to do my sweetest and a tough grandpa, I said, now, would you like Grandpa to give you a kiss? She said, no. <laughs> now, folks, I got a message to tell you. Uh, my, my daughter, Julie, said to me, we looked at her fingers. She's got tiny little fingers. She, Julie said, look at her little finger. It's tiny, but she's got you wrapped around it. <laughs> Let me tell you, folks, something. You can negotiate with your Grandpa but you can't negotiate with God. And today we're going to talk about some things that cannot be negotiated. You can't go to God and say, uh, two Thomas. You know, God says one, you can't say two Thomas. And see three Thomas. I want, to see, want you to see the little boy who was born because he is uh, a grandson, our first grandson. And his name is Leon Alexander. Nine pounds, 12 ounces. Now there's another picture here that shows him a little better. Anyhow, nine pounds, 12 ounces. When the doctor came to see me, because of course he wanted to keep me informed, he said to me, he's a big boy. He's got such a Big chest and big arms. He said, I guess he gets that from his grandpa. <laughs> now, he didn't say that at all, but I thought that's what he was thinking. <laughs> now, folks, 
There's something that's absolutely true. Babies and parents today need prayer as never before because of the world into which these babies are born. And I'm not just talking about liberal San Francisco. I'm talking about the world. Babies and children and parents need the prayers of those who love them. I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 1 down to 9 in the word of the Lord. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 1 and onwards. I want you to notice these words in the Bible and I'm glad that you folks bring your Bibles to church. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. The KJV says perilous times will come. People will be lovers of themselves. Have you heard Christians say to each other, you got to love yourself? They say that all the time. You've got to love yourself. And they quote the text, Jesus said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus wasn't talking about how it ought to be. Jesus was talking about how it was. And people today have got an inordinate love for themselves. Me, me, me. Jesus said, in the last days, people are going to love themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. This is talking about people apparently in the church having a form of godliness, but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. Keep on reading. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women. Another translation says, gullible, naive women, but it is true also of men who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth, always learning. Just as Janais and Jambres, magicians, opposed Moses, so also these men oppose the truth, men of depraved minds who as far as the faith is concerned are rejected, but they will not get very far because as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to every person. These verses, listen carefully, are an apt description of the people who live in Los Angeles and Hollywood and New York and Sydney and Melbourne, around the world. And these conditions, we're told, will be found among professing believers. I want to read from the book by Ravi Zacharias, page 12, Can Man Live Without God? Cindy Chula gave me this book some time back and I'm starting to read it, just about finished it. Listen, may I suggest that in this sense we are possibly a unique generation. A massive global assault has been launched upon us and it is the arts more than any other single force that predominate 
as an influential agent moulding our character, our values and uh, our beliefs. This invasion bypasses our reason and captures our imagination. Never before in history. Amazing. Has so much been at stake as is now in the hands of the image makers of our time. There is something very ironic here. Western man has long prided himself as being the offspring of the Enlightenment, nurtured at the feet of sophisticated thinkers, yet he has in turn brought about the humiliation of reason, the humiliation of reason, by the instruments that were born from the strength of the mind. The second level of philosophizing through the arts has shaped the national mindset in everything from determining war strategy to electing presidents. He's talking here to Americans. To finding one's identity in cars and deodorants. Existentialistic philosophers such as Jean-Paul Sartre and Elvis Camus did not waste their time establishing syllogisms. That is the basis for reason. They harnessed the passion of an empty world within the human psyche and fused it with their own ethos, affecting the mood and feelings of an educated herd. America has now become an educated herd. A homogenization of our cultural tastes quickly ensued and a fastening upon our sensitivities or rather a desensitization of conscience was securely in place through technology. The whole world has now become the media's parish. Talk show hosts, the prophets, actors and musicians, the priests. And any script will do for the scriptures as long as moral constraints are removed. Sitting before a well-lit box is all the cultic performance needs and each person can enthrone his or herself as divine. Truth has been relegated to subjectivity. Do you know what that means? Subjectivity, everything is subject. It's subject to how you feel. It is not based upon objective truth anymore. We have seen in America a total paganization of society. And you and I are a part of it, some more than others. Beauty has been subjected to the beholder and as millions are idiotized. As millions are idiotized night after night, a global commune has been constructed with the arts enjoying a totalitarian rule. This means this, that modern man in his foolishness has given up God and the truths of the Bible. And even if he professes to be a Christian in America, he knows virtually nothing about the scriptures and is too lazy to read. Thus, night by night, he is idiotized. He is ruled not by logic and reason 
but by raw emotion in the church too. Why do you do it? Because I feel like it. Why are you getting married? Because I feel like it. Why are you getting a divorce? Because I feel like it. Why are you leaving your family? Because I feel like it. And Christians and churchgoers in their moral attitudes, surveys have carried out, are no different to the people in Hollywood and San Francisco. Idiotized. Beverly and I, with Russell and Paula Owens from Texas and Paul Zink from California, went to Russia in 1991 to conduct an evangelistic campaign in Moscow. And we made an alarming discovery. Are you strong enough to hear what we discovered? Although communism was evil, and nobody has preached to more communists than I have. Nobody has railed against communism more than I have. Although communism was evil, the people were able to think, concentrate, and accept biblical truth far better than Americans or Australians. Why? Because apparently that evil system was not as bad as ours in destroying the mind. So I could preach to an audience of 10,000 people night after night and they would not stir, not move, and they were like sponges. Try doing that in America or Australia. You know this tale of the secret valley of the blind? I've told it to you on a number of occasions. About the valley up in the Himalayas where everybody was blind and they felt that was normal. And a young man fell into their valley and fell in love with a girl and they said because he was abnormal, because he had eyes, he couldn't marry the girl until they blinded him. The valley of the blind. Let me tell you something and don't forget it because you may not hear it from me much longer. Los Angeles is the valley of the blind. And America has largely become the valley of the blind along with other Western countries. And we think we are normal when we are not. What has happened to the human race? What has happened to America? The great universities were established as Christian centers. Did you know that? Harvard, Yale, Princeton, were founded as evangelical Christian centers to preach the gospel. I read not very long ago of an address that was delivered at Harvard back in the mid-1800s, and it was a talk on the Trinity and the divinity of Christ. Those places now don't even believe in God on the whole. The great American universities, and now propagation centers of atheism and meaninglessness, aggressively anti-God and anti-Christian. And so are the universities in Europe, especially the German and the British ones. I quote, can man live without God, page 31, where the author quotes the great professor Stephen Jay Gould a person who influences the thinking of your favorite television people. He says, 
We are here because one odd group of fishes had a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures. Because comets struck the earth and wiped out dinosaurs, thereby giving mammals a chance not otherwise available. So thank your lucky stars in a literal sense. Because the earth never froze entirely during an ice age, because a small and tenuous species arising in Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and by crook, we may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. This is what is taught today. This is what the media believes in the West. We may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. This explanation, though superficially troubling, if not terrifying, is ultimately liberating and exhilarating. Now, Rabbi Zecher Rice comments on this statement. There is a terrible irony in all of this, isn't there? What is the acceleration and liberation he was talking about? I listened to uh, Dr. Uh, Richard Dawkins last night debating a Christian from Oxford University who got the better of him at every point. This man, Dawkins says, because there is no God, we have a new and wonderful liberation. This is what is taught in the great universities. There is a terrible irony in all of this, isn't there? What is the acceleration and liberation he's talking about? Am I missing something? Is this liberation synonymous with the fact that we have become one of the most violent and drug nations on earth? Talking about America. One of the most violent and drugged up nations on earth. Is this the exhilaration that makes sedatives and acids the most highly sold drugs across pharmaceutical counters to slow us down from our mad rush for an ever increasing wealth? And what I say refers also to Germany, where a million men every day go to prostitutes. Why not? Because there is no God and there is no Bible. And the churches are empty. And one reason the churches are empty is because the churches have failed to proclaim the word of God and have become cold dead centers. Is this the exhilaration that is sending our songwriters and musicians into a frenzy on the stage and into a stupor in their homes? Is this the exhilaration venting forth in our talk shows that pride themselves in profane argument as entertainment? Is this the exhilaration that has fragmented our families and often victimized the weakest in our midst? Is this the exhilaration of living in the bloodiest century in history? Is this the exhilaration of a generation of young people, often fatherless, many times hopeless? Is all this reason for exhilaration or are we playing deadly word games again? I want to say this to you, and I say this to you very seriously. This thinking has influenced all of us. 
The church too often is a reflection of society that lives by its own rules. Thus we find today growing more and more lying, cheating, hating, racism, sexual confusion. Men don't know their men and women don't know their women. And it's taught from the highest people in the land, sexual depravity, no right or no wrong. But I want to tell you something, the church is called to be better and to do better. And so the Bible says, mark this, there'll be terrible times in these last days. Perilous times are here and we must recognize that these are no ordinary times. Extraordinary times call for an extraordinary response. Hallelujah. Amen. A person I admire is Dr. Billy Graham. 95 and going strong. Very recently, Dr. Graham said, America is changing and being changed. He said, why do they want to change America? It was founded on godly principles. I can tell you why, Dr. Graham. You know the reason. He says, there is a war against Christ. Christians can expect persecution in America. We are drowning in a sea of immorality, said Billy. Judgment is coming. And if you don't believe it, my friend, uh, and if you don't turn to God and prepare to meet God, you're going to be swept away in the flood because it's coming. Judgment is coming upon America. Judgment is coming upon the world and the greater the light the nation has had the greater the judgment and america has had more light than any other nation in the history of the world except israel an extraordinary time calls for an extraordinary response look at second timothy chapter 3 verses 10 and onwards you however Know all about my teachings, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my endurance, persecutions and suffering. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions that I endured. Have you ever been persecuted? Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If we're not being persecuted, it's because we're failing in our mission. While evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, it's not going to get better, it's going to get worse until Jesus comes. And how from infancy you've known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-pleased and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We see here the rejection of reason, and in the place of kingly reason, we have the prostitute emotion. The relegation or the rejection of Scripture to a place 
of obscurity will bring about the dark ages. In the Middle Ages, when this book was no longer allowed to be read, when they burned the Bibles and burned the martyrs, there was a time of darkness. History calls it the Dark Ages. As America and the world steps out of the light of the gospel, we have another Dark Ages. And America is now entering upon the Dark Ages. Scripture is our hope and defense. Now, I want you to notice carefully, prayerfully, God's man, God's woman, for such a time as this. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and onwards. Extraordinary times demand extraordinary people. Chapter 4, in the presence of God, out of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. That's why a minister can never be on holidays. He's still a minister when he's on holidays. He doesn't say, I'm going on vacation, therefore I'm no longer a minister. In season, out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths and fables. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. A Christian is called to be a soldier. Paul said to Timothy, you are called to endure hardness as a good soldier. A Christian is not called for weakness, he is called for strength. I want to say a few words now about the ordination of women, which is a discussion that is tearing through the churches, especially the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I think much of the present discussion misses the mark, and I'll tell you why. Every person, every man, and every woman, every person is called to preach the gospel. This idea, I can't preach the gospel until I'm ordained, is a heresy. I believe in the words of the poet who said, Christ, the Son of God, hath sent me all the widespread lands, mine the mighty ordination of the nail-pierced hands. And it's interesting when I read in Mark chapter 3 and verse 14, 
it says, He ordained twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them forth to preach. Now look at me. That word ordained is not in the Greek. You didn't know that? Read it in the NIV. It says, he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them forth to preach. Look at me. I want to talk to the television audience, you folks over here. The only reason that a person ought to be ordained or appointed is to go forth and preach. Who agrees with me? H.M.S. Richards. Go and read his book, Feed My Sheep. A person should not be appointed or ordained to be an accountant or any other job. The Bible says that they might go forth and preach. You all know John Wesley, my hero. John Wesley's mother, what a hero she would make. On one occasion, John Wesley was away from the pulpit. He was preaching somewhere else. And then John Wesley heard the scandalous news that his mother was preaching the word of God to the people who stayed behind. What a heresy. He was an Anglican clergyman. And so he hastened back and started to rebuke his mother who cut him short. She said, I'm as much called to preach the gospel as are you, my son, John. I want to tell you today, every person, whether he is a man or a woman, is appointed to preach the gospel. But that's hard work. We're not ordained or appointed so that we feel better and we have a better status. It's not about status. It is about soul winning. Paul says to Timothy, preach the word. Let me talk about this. He didn't say preach the traditions of the church. Every church has got its own traditions. He didn't say preach the traditions of the church. He said preach the word. This is the word, the Bible. When? In season and out of season. That means whenever you are called, whenever there is an opportunity, you are to preach the word. What word are you to preach? You are to preach the gospel of Christ. That's the most important word. Come over here to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 down to 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 1 down to 4, dear hearts and gentle people. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you were saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. According to the scriptures, we are called to preach the good news, the word of the gospel. 
And I want to say to every person who's watching on television, and we have an audience around the world, a sermon displeases God if it doesn't somewhere have in it the gospel of Christ. I've got to think of people coming in to hear me preach who may be lost souls. I need to tell them the gospel, God loves you. Jesus died for you. Christ went to the cross because he loves you. He went to the cross and bore your sins. He made an atoning sacrifice for your sins. And if you believe in him today, you will pass from death unto life. The heart of every sermon is the cross of Christ. Hanging on the cross was the gospel. We are to preach the sure word of Bible prophecy. We are to preach Revelation 14, the three angels' messages, the law of God, the commandments, his incarnation, his holiness, his atoning sacrifice. We are to preach the blood. We are to preach his resurrection, his intercession, his coming again, the judgment, life everlasting. Preach the word. And that's talking to you too. You say, it doesn't, that's, I'm not a preacher. Yes, God has called you to be a preacher, to preach the word. Everybody is ordained to preach. We are not called to please men, but God. I am not appointed to seek popularity. What you think about me, my American friends, is of little value to me. Let's get that out of the way now. What you think about me is really of no interest to me. I want to be a preacher of God's word who pleases God. Preach the word in season, out of season. Come back to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 and onwards. And unless you and I are doing this, we are a gross irrelevancy. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 and onwards. Preach the word. Be prepared in season, out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. A minister is not called to be popular, but to be faithful. The Bible talks about hearers who've got itching ears. That describes the people of Los Angeles today. It describes the people of San Francisco today. It describes the people of Europe. Did you know in England today, there are more people attending Muslim mosques than going to Christian churches. Why? Because the fire has gone out on the pulpit in the churches. They've got dead men preaching to dead congregations and the Muslims are taking over. People say, we've got to stop the Muslims. 
Well, you just go and preach the word. And there'll be a change. Itching ears. That means people will say, entertain me. Make me laugh. <laughs> it's great going to church because I get so many laughs and then I get fed up with a big potluck. Make me feel good. Tell me how to make money. Tell me that I'm going to heaven when I'm living like hell. Itching ears. That's our society. That's our civilization. And that's why Billy Graham said with the voice of thunder, judgment is coming upon America. A minister doesn't say to the congregation, what do you want to do? He doesn't say that. He tells them what the Bible tells them to do. He doesn't preach myths and fairy tales, but he endures hardship. If you're going to be a true Christian today, you've got to endure hardship. He says, do the work of an evangelist. People always think of me as an evangelist, but I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor. When I go to Australia, I am not a gardener. I am not a tractor driver, but I do the work of a gardener and I get out my little tractor. I do the work of a tractor driver. Every minister, every church member is called to do the work of an evangelist. What's wrong with us? We talk about the Spirit of God, but the Spirit of God, my friend, is never given until we preach the Word and live the Word. I left home when I was 16, traveled a thousand miles. Drove a bulldozer North Queensland for 12 hours a day up at quarter to four in the morning in Taipang country, one of the most dangerous snakes in the world. I love seeing a sun come up when I'm sitting up there on a great big diesel tractor and I'm doing the work of a tractor driver, even though I'm not. So I went through college, driving a bulldozer. I know a bit about it. You are called to do the work of an evangelist. Say, so it's too hard. Well then, my friend, you got a problem. Only God can heal you. The church I have discovered after pastoring the biggest churches and the smallest ones around the world, the church becomes contentious and gossipy when evangelism is neglected. You notice that? When I would go into a place, I would often find churches fighting like mad, kill canny cats, as they'd say in Ireland. People fighting, people criticizing, criticizing the church pastor, criticizing everybody else, talking about what people wear on their fingers and everything else. But if people will lose themselves in a cause greater than themselves, the church will grow. Listen to this, leaders of this church. If this church is not doing the work of an evangelist, if this church 
is not growing. This church is dying and God will remove the candlestick out of its place. Be warned. Preach the word. Do the work of an evangelist. Look at verse 6. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. The time has come for my departure. He said, I've just about worn myself out. My life is ebbing away. Verse 7. I have fought the good fight. Most of us have no idea what that means. This work in which we are engaged is a battle. Paul said, I've been beaten up by the Jews. I've been stoned. I've been shipwrecked. My back has been opened up by the lash. I fought a good fight. I know a little bit about this. We are called to be soldiers. Not babies. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. A runner has a goal. He needs discipline. The race is not for the cowardly or the indolent. I have kept the faith. Paul said, I remain true. I have not turned back. I've been faithful to my calling. There was a time when Paul was so overwhelmed by the work that he almost gave up. Alan White says he looked back to the cross because he felt like giving it all away. The beatings, the coldness in the church, the treachery of the brethren. But he looked back to the cross and took courage. I've kept the faith. This calls for an extraordinary endowment of God's grace. We live in an age of babies, spiritual weaklings. We are called to be men and women and fight the fight of faith. Verse 8, now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. The end result is the reward, the crown. This reward is not for all. People say, no, 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 it's, everybody's going to be saved. Everybody's going to be saved. No one's going to be lost. Everybody's going to be saved. No, that's not true. The reward is for the person who fights the faith, fights the battle, keeps the faith. You say, well, this is salvation by works. No. But unless you have these works, you are not saved. Salvation leads to a complete turnaround in the life. Boys become men. Girls become women. 
They are people with some strength of character, not mamby-pambies, not wimps. It's not for all, but for those who keep the faith. Paul said, beyond the dungeon, the grave, this vial of tears, there is a bright, shining light that's called heaven. When I was in Australia, I buried my brother-in-law. I was his best man when he married my sister. John was a faithful Christian. My last memories of John Stackeroth, when I went up to study the word with him and give him some comfort a few months ago, John with his Bible marked, underlined a man of God who was totally consistent in his walk. He wasn't at church one week and stayed away the next week because he was a spiritual wimp. He kept the faith. Look at verses 14 to 18. Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. That'll happen to you. You'll have elders who'll do you a great deal of harm and people who'll try to destroy you. I have received bullets in my offering plates. Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. At my first offense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. Where were the brethren? May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood by my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth from Nero. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. I can tell you, for those who are faithful, for those who read the word, oh, I can't take time to read the word, get over that indolence and that spiritual laziness. If you say that, it is because you've been brainwashed by the foolish media. and idiotized by the box. But if you give your life to Christ, and if you follow him, and if you are faithful to the mission to preach the word, and if you don't run away from the foe, but if you can look the foe in the eye and you will say, can say, I will not move. There is a crown of glory. Extraordinary times demand an extraordinary response from an extraordinary people. When engulfed by the terrors of the tempestuous sea, unknown ways before you roll, at the end of doubt and peril is eternity, though fear and conflict seize your soul. Just think of stepping on shore and finding it heaven, of touching a hand and finding it God's, of breathing new air and finding it celestial, of waking up in glory and finding it home. When surrounded by the blackness of the darkest night, oh, how lonely death can be. At the end of this long tunnel is a shining light, but death is swallowed up in victory. 
But just think of stepping on shore and finding it heaven, of touching a hand and finding it God's, of breathing new air and finding it celestial, of waking up in glory and finding it home. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. The Carter Report is a self-supporting ministry with a global mission. We believe that the most important thing that we can do in this tremendous hour is to tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We do not believe that this is business as usual. We believe that we are living in the closing hours in the history of this world. Bless your heart, friend. Look at the signs that are being fulfilled almost every day. The signs of the times are shouting at us and they're saying, Jesus is coming soon. I want you to be my partner in global mission. I want you to be my partner in helping to tell the world about the coming of Jesus. I want you to be my partner in the preaching of the distinctive truths of the three angels' messages. Please check us out at the new Carter Report website, carterreport.org. We have a special section whereby you can ask questions and I will give you the answers from the living word of the living God. That is the carterreport.org. My friend, we want you to join us in the mission to preach the gospel in China, in India, in Australia, in Africa, in the United States of America, wherever people are lost and wherever people need to hear the good news that Jesus saves. Please check us out. The new Carter Report website, carterreport.org. I want to hear from you today. to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For 